new on Curiosity Stream. With my infrared drone, I can see what others can't. Drone pilot Doug Thrawn uses his bird's eye view for the ultimate good, saving animals from desperate situations around the globe. Join the rescue effort on a new season of Doug to the Rescue. And you captured a Confederate steamboat. We're taking the ship to freedom. An enslaved crew, a stolen vessel, and a Civil War dash to salvation on impossible escapes. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Keep your car looking its absolute best year-round with 303 Cleaners and Protectants. 303's revolutionary graphene nanospray coating gives you professional protection in a simple, easy-to-use formula. It will keep your car's paint protected for up to 12 months and give an insane level of depth and gloss. You can also use their brand new 303 graphene detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine throughout the year. It can even be used for quick cleanups of light dust and fingerprints in between washes. For a one-two punch to keep your car licking its best, look no further than 303's line of graphene products. 303 Graphene Nano Spray Coating to protect and 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine. Both products are available now at Advanced Auto Parts, AutoZone, and select Walmart locations. Visit 303radio.com for more information. Show, the place where WEEI.com's Rob Bradford talks all things that interest him. Some of which you might just want to listen to. So sit back and soak in another episode of the soon-to-be award-winning show a whole bunch of people are talking about. Here's Rob Bradford. Welcome to another edition of the Bradford Show. I'm Rob Bradford, WEEI.com. I am hosting this podcast today remotely. And, but we are, as always, sponsored by Ghoul's Distinctive Clothing and Hub New England Insurance. You won't find two finer institutions. And the person who is in the podcast studio, the Ghoul's Distinctive Clothing Hub New England Insurance podcast studio, is Alex Beer of WEEI.com. Alex, you sound so good. Why do I sound so crappy? Well, maybe it's because I am in the, the Distinctive Clothing podcast studio. There, there are very few Distinctive Clothing podcast studios in this world, but fortunately we have one of them, and that has put our podcast over the top. Another wildly successful week of Bradfoe Show podcast, but we're going to finish strong. We're going to punctuate this bitch, and we're going to do it by talking a little bit of John Lester. John Lester, obviously. I, I, I actually want to backtrack first, Rob. Yeah, now, sure. you're talking about, quote-unquote, punctuating this bitch. I, I hope yeah. that, that that's a nice life lesson for your children. Um, are, are you talking about, like, drawing a little, like, happy face or a, a heart over the eye in bitch? Or what, what's, your, what's your view of punctuating that bitch? Uh, I get, well, I apologize for the profanity, but my adrenaline got the better of me. Okay, you know, I sense that, that. That usually happens in this sort of podcast. I mean, the last podcast we did, the last Bradford show, was all about Jackie Bradley's afro. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if nothing, so if nothing elicits adrenaline, it's talking about talking with a guy who hasn't cut his hair in two years, yet chooses the Bradford show to tell the world that on Saturday night, 
you will be letting it all hang out and going all Oscar Gamble. That's why my adrenaline's so firing or is firing through my veins right now, Alex. So, so, I so the so you're punctuating you're punctuating the aforementioned five letter word above the eye. Maybe you're drawing like a little a little smiley face that has like a huge head of hair on it. I'm punctuating with another exclamation. Okay, That's great. What I'm doing. Okay, is I it, like it. All right, so let's get right to it. So the topic of today's podcast uh, or the Bradfoe Show is something that I wrote about earlier in the week, and that is replacing John Lester. And my takeaway is that in the story, in the column, was that it, it should be noted how difficult it might be to replace John Lester. I think the conversation, the narrative has been, when looking at John Lester's future, if he walks, then, well, you have these other guys, you have the Henry Owens of the world, you have a long list of guys that we're going to talk about, and they'll just slide in. Or you have Clay Buckholz, or you have John Lackey, or even you have Jake Peavy, or maybe Felix DeBron. But John Lester has emerged into something that it takes a long time to be. And uh, the first thing I want to do, talk to, talk to you, Alex, before we get into how good John Lester has become, is if you could take me through the, some of the names that I had talked about, the guys in the minor leagues, give me an updated status quickly on each of them, and, and kind of put in your mind where they are in regards to morphing into a major league starting rotation. Sure. Well, let's let's view it uh, different. I, I guess. Do you want me to say when you view their when I view their major league ETAs being, yeah, or yeah, when, yeah, yeah, or when what, they would this, be a top of the rotation guy? No, this is what, no. This is what I want to do because we, we don't know when they're going to be a top of the rotation guy. I mean, we can't say as we sit here right now. And I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but there have been guys in recent years who have gone from draft to a couple of years later, top of the rotation, Michael Walk. I mean, but this isn't in the American League East. Right. The, it, the, they, they aren't. They aren't uh, top, top, top tier draft picks. Not that that makes all the difference in the world, but a lot right, of right. Sonny Gray uh, was taking one pick before Matt Barnes. After all, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Well, exactly. And, but it. So, um, so I guess what I want to do is go through the guys real quick. Yeah, with, let's with, do it. With, no, with each of them. Tell me where they're at right now, and then also tell me in a perfect world in the way that they're trending. How, when could they assimilate themselves into kind of a, a middle to top of the rotation position? Okay, let's start with Henry Owens because he's the top Red Sox pitching prospect. Currently okay. still in Double A Portland, just had uh, the fifth outing, the fifth start of his career, the fifth start that he's had since last July, in which he didn't give up any hits. However, this one was a four-inning no-hitter uh, because he walked five guys through basically, you know, 50 to 55% strikes on the day. Um, that That's kind of where Henry Owens is at. He borders on unhittable uh, with, with kind of startling frequency, uh, even though he works mostly at let's say 89 to 91 sometimes bumps 92 93 uh he's uh his stuff is not you know his his changeup is really really good that's a very good major league offering his fastball is average but it places better than that because of the difficulty of picking him up his curveball is a little bit inconsistent sometimes it's very good and when it is he's wow very good um but he still is kind of working to refine his command uh his uh he and he's going to have to be pretty precise with his command while he's working in that 89 to 91 one range at the major league level so to me right now 
Right now, I, there's a chance that he could help at the end of this year. I think that the greater likelihood is that he, is that he would be kind of in position to become to kind of transition into a regular big league rotation spot sometime in the middle of next season. Okay, so l- let me stop you there. And you look at Henry Owens, like you said, let's stay on the John Lester track, which is if John Lester leaves, what X would happen? And with Henry Owens, if John Lester leaves, in your mind the way that he's going right now, you said the middle of next year, is there a chance you say, Henry Owens, we can, we can at least attempt to slot him into the rotation heading into next season, or is that just jumping the gun? That is, there's absolutely that possibility. The Red Sox have done that before with Clay Buckholtz, most notably, when they committed to him at the start of 2008. That didn't go so well. Uh, but that, that would be the kind of model for the progression of Henry Owens. The John Lester model, which is, use, which is worth thinking about because like like John Lester, Henry Owens was drafted out of high school, is that Lester kind of became uh, kind of graduated into the big league rotation in June. Okay, and I, and I want to get to Lester a little bit later about his progression and, and why he's sitting at where he's sitting at right now and, and how he got to that point, because it, it takes a while, and that's kind of the whole premise of this, this show today, is, is that it might take a little bit. So Henry Owens, hey, he might be in the rotation next year, but still, there's some progress to be made, and there's further refinement, definitely, and an evolution to be had. Uh, so we have Henry Owens, and we would classify him, I guess, as the best example or best case of a guy, best chance of a guy filtering into the top of the rotation. Meaning, again. in his case, I think that because of what the stuff is like, um, right. he doesn't have he doesn't have John Lester's fastball, he doesn't have John Lester's cutter, which at times, John Lester's cutter in his career has been an 80 pitch on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. Henry Owens doesn't have an 80 pitch. So, uh, you're looking at a guy with a lower ceiling than what John Lester has. That's, that doesn't mean a bad pitcher, but I think that uh, the scouting community tends to tends to agree that uh, Henry Owens uh, Henry Owens, if he if he hits on his on what is kind of viewed as his likely ceiling, would be a number three or a number two starter. Okay, so there's one off the list, and and we classify I think Henry Owens as a top, the top, top Red Sox pitching prospect right. because the the floor is pretty good too. Even you know I, based based on the fact that he just doesn't give up hits and how you know his his understanding of pitching uh he still looks like a major league starter you know if that's if he struggles with his command then he's probably like a number five number four starter well i think it's a perfect example of what we're talking about alex because henry owens like you said i mean he can have a very very good major league career can be a very very good major league pitcher but the way john lester has evolved he's evolved into something more than just a very very good pitcher right now he's the embodiment on the mound right now of gould's distinctive clothing uh, and Hub New England Insurance, both, both of them, both. absolutely. Yeah, uh, that was, that's perfect. That's that's right. a good description of ceiling and floor, right? Because insurance is the floor; it's protection, and you know. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> okay, um, so who's number two? Who, who's number two? Uh, number two, you kind of have you have a little bit of a uh, of of a of a cluster, I think, and in that, and it keeps moving back and forth for me as to who you would rate as the second best Red Sox pitching prospect. Alan Webster has been the most consistent guy in Pawtucket thus far this year. Uh, right now, if you were looking to if the Red Sox needed a start, he's probably the the best candidate for it. 
More than Del Rosa? Yeah, Del Rosa kind of fell off in the last... He started out... He was unbelievable in his first four starts. Uh, he's lost his command in his last four. He's started walking a lot of guys. He's still getting a ton of ground balls this year, a decent number of swings and misses, but you don't have the same confidence in his reliability to provide innings right now that you would in, in Webster, which is a little bit surprising based on how last year went for him in the big leagues. How about Renato Workman and Barnes? Right. So, uh, so Renato has started to look pretty good in Pawtucket right now. His his most recent outing yesterday was seven shutout innings, the longest of his AAA career, a career high one hundred nine pitches. Uh, he was he wasn't getting a ton of swings and misses, but what he was doing really well was executing down in the strike zone. Fastball ninety two to ninety three miles an hour. Curveball he was really effective with twenty three of thirty curveballs yesterday for strikes. Um, so he was just getting a lot of bad contact. Uh, and it was he was he was commanding well enough to get a number of looking strikes. Um, so you know, even though he only had six swings and misses over those 109 pitches, he still had five punch outs. It was a very good outing for him, very promising. Uh, there have been a few of those of late. Uh, still some inconsistencies with him at the AAA level, um, but that fastball curveball combination can be pretty good. And you know, I, I think that Renato is kind of gravitating towards a place where you're looking at his big league ceiling as maybe a number three, his big league floor. Is maybe being a number five uh, if he's not a very good late innings bullpen arm. Um, I still think that he's he's a big league starter, but uh, at, at any rate, um, he's someone who is probably ready at some point this year to help out. Well, it should be noted, Alex, in spring training, I think he was the guy that kind of jumped up in a lot of people's mind, and because we get a chance to see him uh in in person a lot of us for the first time um and this is also a guy that I remember seeing him in portland a, a couple of years ago throwing 90 and he had all kinds of injury problems with the puerto rico uh again had some problems but he was very very powerful in fort myers and left a really really good impression so uh, how about work again? How about Workman and how about Barnes? Workman's been getting pretty hitty, hit pretty hard down in uh, down in AAA. You know he's been doing his branded Workman thing, which is throw a lot of strikes. Uh, and sometimes that results in resounding contact. So he had a game recently where he punched out like a billion batters, uh, but he gave up four hits, and all four of them were solo home runs. Um, and uh, he's he's had other games where he's given up ten hits down in Pawtucket. So he is not overwhelming his competition. He is attacking the strike zone. He is getting a decent volume of strikeouts. Uh, but he's not someone who you would say... I mean, he's someone who still looks like he could be a big league starter, um, but he's not the guy who you would say, oh yeah, that's the natural inheritor to the John Lester legacy. He's not throwing as well now, I would say, as he was a year ago at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been interesting to see if... I know they they want to keep him as a starter this year, but clearly even earlier this year when he was up with the Red Sox, he was so effective in, the, in those short stints out of the bullpen. Yeah. It'll be see how that kind of works uh, if if a need arises later in the year if they morph from back into that. I'd be really the- interested to know how they view it and in terms of you know whether or not they would have Workman be the guy who they would bring back up now if they needed a starter over a Webster who's been the more consistent and impressive guy. And, and it should be added that Webster in his most recent outing, uh, I think he threw something like six and two-thirds innings with nine punch-outs, which was the most strikeouts of any uh, member of the Paw Sox this year. My earlier statement that Workman struck out a billion guys notwithstanding. So it, that, would, that would be an interesting one for me. It'd be, be, for me, it's between those two guys. And the weird thing is a billion wasn't even hyperbole. 
So, yeah, because I know you don't deal in hyperbole. Never, never. It was, it was literally a billion. Literally. Last one, Matt Barnes. What yeah. Are you doing? Matt Barnes has been uh, Matt Barnes has been pretty good down in uh, down in Pawtucket. What he's been doing well this year is working relatively efficiently, uh, which was kind of which was kind of a limitation for him last year in Portland. Last year he got a ton of strikeouts. I believe he led the Eastern League in strikeouts per nine innings, but. His pitch count would get run up, so he 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 averaged less than five innings an outing, which obviously isn't going to get it done at the big league level. In Pawtucket so far, he's getting less strikeouts, pitching a little bit more to contact, and he's doing well in doing so. I think that most recently he threw seven innings, which was the second time, I want to say, in his, uh, in his minor league career that he's worked that long in a game. Um, and, you know, again, not a ton of swing and miss, but you're starting to see some things coming together. To me, he's someone who doesn't have to be added to the 40-man roster until after this season. Renato's on it. Workman is on it. Owens is another guy who's not on the 40-man roster. De La Rosa is on it. Uh, you would probably default to adding the guys who are on the 40-man roster before you would maybe start to consider Barnes for a late-season promotion if he's been really good. But what I would like to see Barnes do, if I'm the Red Sox, before promoting him is combine the two elements, efficiency and swings and misses, uh, which he hasn't combined really since uh, since his very first days in professional ball in Greenville and then and then at the beginning of his time in Salem. Okay, Alex, give me a lower-level guy who we could enter into the conversation. Obviously, this is this is not the replacing John Lester conversation, but a lower-level guy that may be someone that maybe you know by the end of Clay Buckholz's uh, contract commitment, or maybe that maybe that's a little too far down the road. That's 2017. Yeah, I can give you one before that. Uh, sure, Brian, yeah. Brian Johnson is currently in Double A Portland. He spent almost all of last year in Greenville before spending his last two starts in Salem. He was a first-round draft pick in 2012, the Jonathan Papelbon compensatory pick, uh, and uh, last year spent almost the entire year in Greenville. But there was a reason for that, which was his progression was slowed a lot by the fact that he took a line drive off the face when he was in Lowell that ended his season. After he did that, he spent an off season in which, until Thanksgiving, he had to his his food was consumed out of a straw. So he lost a lot of weight, lost a lot of strength, um, and wasn't able to have a full off season program. As a result, he was slowed out of Greenville. But this is a guy who was pretty advanced, a really good college pitcher out of the University of Florida, who has an interesting four pitch mix uh, and. Uh, has a pretty good understanding of how to use it, more advanced than most other guys. So he spent, I think, three starts this year in Salem before he got bumped up to Double A Portland. And right now, he's a guy who's showing some some pretty interesting uh, pitchability. You know, meaning he doesn't have overwhelming stuff. Although his curveball is played up into maybe being a swing and miss pitch at the major league level uh, going forward, but he just has a really good understanding of how to, uh, as a left-hander, how to get his fastball in on right-handed hitters and then use breaking stuff away in order to get bad contact and actually quite a number of punchouts. He's been doing well on that front as well. So to me, Brian Johnson, if you're just ranking prospects now belongs in that tier with the Renato Barnes uh, with the Renato Barnes workman type of grouping. Oh okay, in your opinion, knowing what you know, could you see Johnson leapfrogging this other collection of pitches that we're talking about, including Owens? Absolutely. There's well, not Owens. No. I, I don't think that he has I don't think that he has Owens' ceiling. I think that Johnson kind of has a three four ceiling based on the fact that he doesn't have he doesn't have Owens's changeup. He doesn't have just a devastating swing and miss pitch along the lines of what Henry Owens does. So there's a little bit more uncertainty. Um, 
but I think that the potential exists for him to leapfrog the other guys in terms of the kind of quality of major league career he could have based on his, uh, uh, on his ability to execute with a lot of different stuff and in different parts of the strike zone and even, even getting some chases out of it. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say he will be better than them. I would say that he's now put himself in a position where there's a chance. No, I didn't ask you to say yeah. he will be. No, I no, I just, I just think it's important to clarify because, like, when we go through these prospect rankings, like, the one thing that we're not doing is saying what the future will be. We're kind of identifying probabilities and, and potentials, right? Well, I mean, I think this goes back to the Lester conversation, and that is perfectly looped back because I remember a press box conversation when John Lester was struggling to get through five innings, and he wasn't very pitch efficient, even though he had great stuff. Say, this guy's never going to get it. This guy's never going to get it. And... And then even when he's going good, he's a different type of pitcher than he is now. And one of the things that I had mentioned in the column, when asked independently players, not Lester, not pitching coaches, but players who have faced John Lester, players who have played behind John Lester, what makes John Lester so good? And they all said, first and foremost, the ability to pitch to both sides of the plate. And as you know, Alex, that is something that John Lester took a while to understand. He cited this meeting back in Cleveland in 2008 with Veritech and Farrell about, you know, you have to start doing this. And then the progress he made in the, the, the exercises he did with Farrell, 10 pitches at a time, one from one side of the plate, one to the other side of the plate. It's a work in progress, but it got to the point and really it only got to this point, I think, in the last couple of years, where he's able to do his, and this is what elevated him. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it's a perfect example of how long it can take for a guy not to be a good pitcher like John Lester was, but to be what John Lester is now, which is a lock-solid American League East, top-of-the-rotation top of type of guy. So... I, I, I think you're totally right about the nature of a developmental progression. The one thing that I want to clarify is that I think that John Lester now is basically as good as he was in the 2008-2010 run, where he wasn't able to have the same sharpness of execution, but his stuff was so consistently overpowering, the swings and misses so frequent in volume, that he remained a, an ace-caliber pitcher in the ALEs. That's, well, that's, my, that's well, my belief. That's well, my belief. That, that's out the way, and, and listen, he had a good run then, and he's had some really, really good runs. There's no doubt about it. But we also know that he was a different type of pitcher, and this is what he'll tell you as yes, well. absolutely. Which is, which is he was living off of stuff. Yep. And if, when you live off of stuff a lot of times and you're that type of pitcher, you're going to hit bumps in the road, extended bumps in the road, which he did. Um, but now you look at him. And to see what he's doing, hey, hey, listen, he might go on another another bad run here. Sure, he, he has before. He did last year. Great pitchers go on bad runs sometimes. Right, right, sure, but but the 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 dynamic of what he did in the postseason and the American League East dynamic, I just think you can't ignore. I just think everything has kind of come together yep. to make John Lester what he is now. But I I, I I guess I'll ask you this. Well, and we're talking about now twelve years since he was drafted. Right. Hey, no. So, to, to, to make the point again, it takes a while. And it doesn't, it might not take a while to be a top of the rotation pitcher, but to be, we're talking about replacing John Lester. Because if, they, if John Lester goes, right, if you have John Lackey, 
you have Clay Buckholz, you have Felix DeBrunt, perhaps you have Jake Peavy, and you have a bunch of these young pitchers. I can't imagine they're going to dive heavily into a free agent market other than John Lester and say, hey, we're going to replace John Lester with a, a Max Scherzer or, or, or take a run at, at David Price a year from now or, or whatever, right? You would agree with that? The only question is whether or not there would be an interesting trade candidate who would uh, who would appear on the horizon for them. But I, you know, I like the Josh Beckett model of uh, of figuring out how to replace an ace. But yeah, to me, I don't I don't see them going in uh, going into a market with Max Scherzer where he's already turned down. What was it, six and one forty four? Yeah, it's it's weird because it's it, you have every right. I weren't every right, but you you have it's re- perfectly legitimate to talk about that sort of trade. Remember Pedro Martinez and remember, as you said, Beckett. Um, But you look at the landscape of right now, and that kind of trade where you're unloading a bunch of prospects seems to me like it's so much more prevalent for a position player than it is for a starting pitcher. Like, I can't imagine. We saw it uh, a couple of years ago with Gio Gonzalez and Matt Latos, and you know, yeah, we, we've but, you seen know, it. We yeah, but those the, still, Alex. I mean, I think those guys are were good pitchers, very good pitchers, very good young pitchers. But I mean, go back to what Pedro Martinez and even what Beckett was. I mean, were, were they better than them? I mean, Pedro, I, I just think was Pedro. Pedro was in a, a separate class. Obviously, right. he was a reigning Cy Young winner. But no, with with Gonzalez, he was a guy with very good ERAs. But there was uncertainty based on the crazy walk rates. With Latos, uh, Latos was a guy who I think was very much comparable to Beckett at the time that the Red Sox traded for him. Well, I just I just find it very hard to believe the way that the teams are viewing things now, and this is one of the reasons I do think that there's so much parity and you're having some of these teams be able to manage payroll is because you're signing these young pitchers, they're prioritizing the young pitchers, the young pitchers are developing, and, and I mean, Oakland is the perfect example of this, right? And, and, but I just don't see... I don't them. see the A's trading Sonny Gray to the Red Sox, right? Uh, right, right. Which is and, the replacing John Lester conversation. Yeah, and, and, and this is... Teams, teams, small market teams and mid-market teams know right now if they have any chance of hanging with these other teams, they, these are the guys they're going to have to hang on to. So all of that aside, with John Lester going forward, what do you think... It, what do you think is going to happen, number one? And what do you think should happen? What, what, if you were running the Red Sox, what would be your plan of attack when it came to John Lester? Because you have a really good perspective of where these guys in the minor leagues are, and obviously you have a good perspective of the landscape of baseball. What do you think? Well, let's start with what would you do, and then you can tell me what you think is going to happen. I mean, I, I would have I would have used the uh, used the spring training time. Well, I don't know. First of all, I want to make this clear: we do not know exactly what went on behind closed doors with the Red Sox negotiations with John Lester. Aside from the fact that there that we know, as you've reported, Rob, that there was a four year, seventy million dollar offer on the table from the Red Sox, which to me is you know really, if I I operate on the assumption that that was not kind of uh, kind of uh, presented uh, yeah, as the I, end point of where they were, of where their talks went. I don't even care what they did. Right. I want to. I want to know what you would do. And, and you're right. And I agree with you. I think and I've said this a million times before. No matter what the Red Sox approach was, that spring training window was a perfect time to me. This is. I'll, I'll, I'll jump it a little bit. I'll say what I would do. I said I have no problem with off trying to get the four years, trying to do it, but doing it by overpaying in right. years, as opposed so, to underpaying. Yeah. No. Right. It, it's. It's. Uh, 
And this is and this is the model of negotiations for the Red Sox. They did it with Pedroia. Uh, that started at a very low, low rate and, and moved up. I, I would imagine if the Yankees didn't jump in, they might have moved up a little bit for Ellsbury. This is their model. But I'm still, Alex, I want to know what you would do, that aside, going forward in regards to John Lester. Yeah, I view him as being, I, I, don't, I don't see how you replace him if he leaves. So I, I think that you have to take that premise. You have to identify the fact that you have a ton of payroll flexibility coming down the pipe for next year. Uh, so to me, I, I don't... I think that if you're the Red Sox, you you have to figure out a way to extend him, barring some kind of unforeseen uh, drastic injury. Um, you know, I, I think you know, and you you kind of have to move into that model of trying to get fewer years. And to me, fewer years means five. I think that you're doing very well if you're the Red Sox if you can extend John Lester for five years, uh, because the market would probably bear out. To me, I, I think that the market would bear out more than that. Um, and you know, you have to have it at an aggressive place kind of in the you know in that kind of Cole Hamels type average annual value uh, of 24-ish a year I think that I think that it's it's hard to imagine them being able to get something done for less I don't see how they replace him if if they don't get into that territory absolutely I know you got to get going and by you bring up a good point about the payroll flexibility because because of where this starting rotation is now, where you have Lackey at the major league minimum, Buckholz committed at reasonable dollars through 2017, DeBrant only hitting arbitration next year, then a bunch of these young guys, you can still do this. You can still do the $24 million, million a year model and keep things manageable within that starting rotation. So what? Alex so the one alternative yeah. that you might want to consider is whether or not he is, what, is like a Pedroia-type contract, where maybe if you say, okay, let's see, 5 and 120 would be a fair point, but... Would you be willing to play ball and make that an eight-year 120 uh, in order to be able to kind of give us payroll flexibility so we can build a really good team around you? Um, you know, that would be an interesting conversation. I realize that, uh, that it, would be, uh, it would be the antithesis of their model. It would be more years for fewer dollars. Um, but uh, to me, it has to be one of those two things, right? It either has to be, uh, it either has to be fewer years and more dollars, or more years and fewer dollars. I don't see how yeah, you can do yeah. anything else. It'd be it'd be a tricky one. He would really want to have to stay here. He would really want to have to be a Boston A team guy, which you know, obviously, which he, he wants said to he be. very candidly that he wants to be. Sure. Right, but but you know, so he's thirty right now. Um, and you're talking about, let's say, the four or five year, let's say the five year contract. There's still a, a window there to get some decent dollars after that. Whereas you obviously do the eight year contract at lower money, th- that, that's probably out the window. But before you go, so what do you think is going to happen? I think he resigns. I, I, I do. I, I just have a hard time imagining. Uh, Im- I, I really do think that there is a desire on both sides to the point where it's difficult for me to imagine. Uh, it's difficult for me to imagine the key, the key decision makers in this saying, you know what? No, I think that we can move on. You know, I, I think that we're better off in, in a different world. I, I don't, I don't see that happening. I, I still think that he resigns. Yeah. I think there's such a push both internally, uh, and on that team in the clubhouse, um, the desire from him, as he stated, and all the things that we've mentioned too, that, you know, they can start at a very low rate, which by all accounts that has happened, but you have to get realistic. You know, Adam Wainwright's a guy I've thrown around his his extension he threw last year or signed last year. It's all an interesting conversation. And Alex, for your, for your input, your conversation, your analysis, your expertise, you can go head on over to Google's Distinctive Clothing and either get an at Bradfoe T-shirt, a cravat. I have three. I have three at Bradfoe T-shirts. Uh, I want an at Bradfoe cravat. 
a cravat or I was going to say a pocket square, whatever you want. <laughs> uh, okay, well, thanks a lot, and, uh, and have a great weekend. Mazel tov. New on Curiosity Stream. From time to time, we have collisions between asteroids and the Earth. We track them, we study them, we hope the big one never comes. Don't look up, it's Asteroid Rush. And alligators. They rarely get sick. They even outlasted the dinosaurs. Could they hold the secret to human longevity? Their blood could have antibacterial applications. Wade into the investigation on immortal alligators. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Keep your car looking its absolute best year-round with 303 Cleaners and Protectants. 303's revolutionary graphene nano spray coating gives you professional protection in a simple, easy-to-use formula. It will keep your car's paint protected for up to 12 months and give an insane level of depth and gloss. You can also use their brand new 303 graphene detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine throughout the year. It can even be used for quick cleanups of light dust and fingerprints in between washes. For a one-two punch to keep your car licking its best, look no further than 303's line of graphene products. 303 Graphene Nano Spray Coating to protect and 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine. Both products are available now at Advanced Auto Parts, AutoZone, and select Walmart locations. Visit 303radio.com for more information. The difference between an agent and a Realtor is real. Realtors have the expertise to find exactly what you need and the ethics to do the right thing, even when it's the harder thing. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. That's who we are. 